May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Again, I want to thank all of you for your patience and your understanding and your presence with us today for this service. I'm bringing you this message, this sermon, not standing in a space that's familiar to all of you, the pulpit of the cathedral building itself, but rather sitting in a uh, space, our guest bedroom in my home office, which is a uh, space that's familiar only to some of you uh, who have uh, our regulars perhaps at the Bible study or in one of the what seems like hundred of Zoom meetings uh, that we have had uh, since March. Earlier this week, as we were coming up with this uh, plan B for today's service, I was going to start out by saying that this entire Advent and Christmas are not normal. That given all the wider circumstances going on, given all the hardships and the uh, uncertainties and instabilities that are swirling around, that th this is not a normal Advent or Christmas. But as I was thinking about that this week, I, I ran across an essay that was written by the Episcopal priest and author Lisa Cressman, where she was urging folks not, not to say that this Christmas isn't normal. Please don't say this Christmas isn't normal, she said. And here's what she wrote about that. Here's why she says that. One definition of normal, she writes, is the average of all the times that something has occurred. And by this definition of normal, celebrating the birth of Christ while people are experiencing hardship is the norm. Uncertainty and grief at Christmas is the historical average of all the times that we have celebrated Jesus's birth. In fact, Cressman writes, the ratio is roughly 1,950 to 70, meaning until the year 1950, when the US economy after World War II became its most stable, most people in the United States lived with some kind of economic uncertainty. Most people in the United States lived with uncontrolled illnesses like the Spanish flu or polio, and there was not yet a chicken in every pot. It's only in the last 70 years, she reminds us, that we've been accustomed to certain kinds of stability, especially for the majority caste. The stability that many of us have enjoyed, though, is not the norm. It's a pretty small piece of the pie for a pretty small segment of the world's history and population. A custom, she says, a custom means this is what we're most familiar with. Yes, there's grief in not celebrating Christmas in the manner to which we have been accustomed in the past. In fact, for the first time in 30 years, my wife and I will celebrate Christmas without any of our children in the house. Yes, there's grief. But if we enter into this truly average, normal Christmas of hardship and uncertainty, we will more fully appreciate the joy in the nature of Jesus's birth, as it's told in scripture. And that's the thought that I want to start with and leave you with this morning. The gospel that we've heard this morning from the first chapter of Luke leads up to the birth of Jesus, a birth that we will be celebrating in 
just 12 more days. The story that we heard today tells the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who had become resigned to what was then in their culture and religion, a sad reality of being without children. They learn that through divine intervention, they would in fact be bringing life into the world, not just any life, but the one who would become John the Baptist, prophet of the most high. So in this scene, Zechariah is freed from a nine month long silence that had been imposed upon him by the angel Gabriel and Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks, the first words out of his mouth are words of praise, which we now know as the song of Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people and has redeemed them. Zechariah knows that in the birth of his son, John, God has looked with favor, not only upon them as a couple, but on the whole people of Israel, that God is keeping God's promises. And so, as one commentator says, as we read this, it's brand new, but it also fills us with a sense of deja vu. Where have we heard this story before? This story of an elderly couple bringing new life and a prophetic voice into the world. And of course, the answer is that it reminds us of the story of Abraham and Sarah. And in fact, Luke is deliberately reminding us of that story. He's drawing these parallels. The entire story of God's covenant relationship with Israel, beginning with Abraham and Sarah, is coming to fulfillment in this story that Luke is telling. And the story begins with the birth. And it begins with a promise against all odds. Fulfillment for the people Israel has been a long time coming. The people hearing the story for the first time have been through wars. They've been through captivity. They've been through exile. They are being dominated by foreign rulers. And in Luke's time, they have been crushed by the Roman Empire. So it's not, it's not just that, though. It's personal. Remember, at, at the beginning of this telling of this story in Luke's gospel, Zechariah, we're, we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and good people. They've done nothing wrong, and they've done everything right. But still, Zechariah and Elizabeth's hopes had been crushed. They had not materialized. Things had not worked out for them as they had hoped and planned. And in those kinds of times, there has got to be a temptation to say, what did I do wrong? Why is God holding out? Or where are you, God? And it's in such times. It is in such times of doubt. It's in times of disappointment. It's in times of frustration that God enters in. When hope seems lost, God enters in. When hope seems lost, people of faith do not despair, but rather people of faith remember. People of faith remember how God has been faithful in the past. Now, as many of you know, I'm a, I'm a follower of Ignatian spirituality, which is the spirituality that was um, um, created by Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits in the 1550s somebody who was way ahead of his time, a spiritual genius. And a major contribution of Ignatian spirituality is a recognition that we go through states. Um, we go through attitudinal states. And he called the two major states state, a state of consolation and a state of desolation. 
In times of consolation, we are, well, consoled. The blessings that we receive in a time of consolation uh, are things like God um, is directing our focus beyond ourselves. Our hearts are lifted up in times of consolation. We, we have peripheral vision in times of consolation. We, we can see the joys and sorrows of other people. In times of consolation, we have feelings of inspiration, we have fresh ideas, and God gives us energy. On the other hand, in times of desolation, Ignatius teaches, in times of desolation, we're turned inward, we're turned in on ourselves. Uh, we go into a kind of downward spiral of negativity. We, we cut ourselves off from community, from fellowship, from interactions. We have a, a, a sinking sense of what's the use, why bother? And we easily give up on things that are normally very important to us because we don't have much energy. So what are we to do? Ignatius asks, what are we to do? What he says is this, in times of consolation, in times that we are consoled, in times of upward spirals, we are to relish it. We should journal, we should store up memories. We're encouraged to use the energy that we have to do good, to reach out to others that we can see. And most of all, we're to tell God how we feel and we're to thank God for the feeling of consolation. In a time of desolation, what are we to do? In a time of desolation, what we're advised to do is to remember, to remember. We, like Zechariah, are to remember how God has been faithful in the past, even when all hope seemed lost. In times of desolation, we're to remember times of consolation, to go back to them, to reread them, to recall them in our imagination. What did it feel like to be consoled? In times of desolation, we're to seek companionship and fellowship. We're to seek trusted companions out. Most of all, in times of desolation, we're to tell God how we feel and to ask God for help. No, this Advent and this Christmas are not what we are accustomed to. But again, as Cressman reminds us, that doesn't mean that these times aren't normal. Chaos and turmoil, economic and other kinds of uncertainty, paranoid, self-centered Herods and Caesars ruling with iron fists, personal frustrations, disappointments, and doubts, a crying out of, where are you, God? Are you up there? What did I do wrong? Why are you holding out on me? All that is, in fact, normal. And that is where God acts. That is where God enters in. God's reign of mercy and justice break in in such times. So thanks be to God for this opportunity that our faith offers us to enter in to this truly average, normal Christmas of hardship and uncertainty so that we can more fully appreciate the joy and nature of God breaking in and entering in and lifting us up.
Amen.